Well, friends, um, let's uh, let's pray as we as we stand and ask uh, ask the Lord to um, to open His Word uh, to us. So, um, why don't we why don't we pray? Heavenly Father, we indeed um, thank you uh, for the gift of your holy word. We pray that you will open uh, your word to us. Speak to us by your Holy Spirit, we pray. And we pray that you will change us um, and send us out to um, reflect your glory and bring you honor. Amen. Please uh, do take a seat. Well, let me uh, extend my warm welcome uh, to you. Um, my name is uh, Alex. For those of you who do not know me, I'm one of the uh, members here at St. John's. So um, this morning we are going through um, the, the Psalms. So um, last week we looked at Psalm chapter 2, and today we will be looking at Psalm uh, chapter 8. It will be helpful if you can have your Bibles opened uh, that Abby read for us earlier on Psalm chapter 8. And if you find it helpful, uh, there is a, uh, a, service, a, a sermon sheet that you can also use to follow um, as we progress. Well, what is man? What is man? And that's the question in verse 4. What is man? What, what are human beings? I wonder if you ever asked that, uh, that same question. Uh, King David, uh, who, who wrote this psalm, of course, who, who wrote it about um, probably 1,000 BC, uh, or BCE as they, they call it now, uh, could only observe the moon uh, from, uh, from a distance. Uh, but thanks to modern science, uh, we had sent man uh, to land on the moon. Uh, we now also know that, uh, that the stars that David uh, observed is an infinite, ever-expanding universe with billions of uh, galaxies other than uh, our own uh, solar system. Uh, so, so what is man? What is man in relation uh, to such an infinitely vast universe? Well, at one level, the answer is nothing. Uh, man is nothing, like, uh, like dust floating about in the air. Uh, therefore, one moment and gone the next. Ultimately, one, you know, one can say that man can be reduced to nothing but atoms and molecules and, and share the same common building blocks as, uh, as what we read earlier, cattle, birds, fish, beasts of the field uh, that, we, uh, that we saw. Uh, but um, we don't live as though man is nothing, uh, do we? Uh, it's quite the reverse. We treat uh, each human being as individuals with dignity and integrity. Uh, but where does, where does our significance then, where does our worth come from? Well, is it from a, a process of evolution, you know, a protective mechanism that, um, uh, that we need against the, uh, the brutality of survival of the fittest? 
Or is it from, from laws, from human laws, such as the Human Rights Act or the Equality Act uh, that demand that we treat each person uh, with dignity and respect? Well, for, for many, uh, I guess, um, our significance, or equally, I guess, lack of it, uh, stems from, from our roots, my family, my culture, my religion. And it also stems uh, from our closest uh, relationships, um, doesn't it? My, my spouse, my uh, other half, my beautiful children, my urban family with whom I laugh and cry with. And in a lonely place like London, we commonly find our worth in ourselves, living from one entertainment to another. Uh, I saw an advert outside a wine shop that says, life is basically all the stuff that uh, you have to do to get from coffee time to wine time. <laughs> well, this, uh, this, this kind of uh, living is exhausting. We are chasing after our own tails, you know, all the time. And, and often disappointing, disappointing. We've made uh, goalposts uh, that things that should not have been the central points in our lives. And well, Psalm, Psalm 8 begins by telling us the central point. In that, first and foremost, this is God's world. We live in God's world. So the psalm begins, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So this psalm kind of begins by realigning our location, rather like a Google map, wanting to find your location before it can sort of navigate us anywhere. Uh, reading Psalm 8 is, is like having an eye test uh, at the optician. Uh, I've had it for all my life. And the optician would slot in lenses of different strengths uh, until, uh, until I say, ah, oh, yes, yes, that's, that's the one. And Psalm 8 finds us that right lens, that right focus through which we understand our place in this uh, vast universe. So friends, yes, this is God's world, and he is majestic in his uh, creation, uh, which is our first heading if you, if you follow that uh, sermon sheet. So if you don't mind, take, take a look at verse 3 with me in your Bibles. Verse 3 says, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Well, this, this is God's world because he made it. He made it. King David here used the account of creation from the book of Genesis. And, and I love it when verse 3 says that the universe is the work of God's fingers. You know, it is so easy for him because he is so powerful. He is so majestically powerful in his creation. You know, this was brought home to me um, just this week, you know, as, as, as I watched the, um, the storm on Tuesday night. Um, 
How terrifying that the lightning flashes occurring every few seconds. Nature is so powerful. So how much more powerful then is our creator God who made this world by the work of his fingers? So what then is mankind? Well, man is totally and utterly powerless. Compared to the universe, man is just dust, a blob. Compared to the powerful creator God, well, <laughs> there is just no category to even begin to compare God and man. God is simply too majestically powerful. But friends, the work of God's fingers is, is, is not only just an image of power. Uh, it's also an image of beauty. Our fingers produce the finest work of art. You know, recently um, we went to see a classical guitarist uh, at St. Martin's. You know, as she, as she performed, her fingers moved so effortlessly through her guitar. It was just beautiful to watch. I think the only word that I can say is that it was good. It was good. God's masterpieces are good. Uh, but one, and that may be surprising to us, one which stands above all, the Mona Lisa of all creation, appears to be man, human beings. And so verse 4 tells us that... Um, that God is mindful of man. Mankind fills God's mind, uh, just like our loved ones fill our minds. Uh, and they're a constant source of anxiety for us. We care for their well-being day and night. You know, it's not that God doesn't care, of course, for the rest of his creation, uh, but clearly man or the son of man, you know, the generations of mankind, gets a special place in his heart. Of all of God's creation, only man was made in the image of the creator God himself. So if you take a look at verses 5 and 6 with me, you made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet. Friends, there are no other parts of creation where, where the creator puts something of the essence of himself into the things that he made. Um, man is crowned with glory and honor. This is the kind of language used for God himself. So verse 1 is a good example. Verse 1 says, You have set your glory above the, the heavens. And now in verse 5, this glory of the Lord is also crowned upon man. I mean, I find this quite extraordinary, friends, that this uh, powerless blob in God's universe, God made in his own image and crowned him with glory and honor. You know, God does not have to do it. 
But in doing so, God shows us his goodness. He is an absolutely generous and good God. You can put it, if you want, that God is majestically good in his creation. And he also made man rulers. He made man rulers over all creation. Yes, this is God's world, but God had given man the right and the power to rule his world. And Samet shows that uh, by, by saying that he has put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds, beasts, birds of the air, fish of the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. God has put everything in subjection under man. What a, what a freedom indeed. This is true freedom. It is ironic that um, not uncommonly perception of the Christian God is of an oppressive bully. Don't do this, don't do that. If you do it, I will punish you. If you don't do it right, I won't reward you. Well, I guess that's what we commonly call religion. But here in Psalm 8 is freedom. It shows us that the true and living creator God is good. You know, while with mankind, absolute power corrupts absolutely, with God, his power gives freedom to man. God's power means our freedom and our glory. God is majestically good. Well, friends, just a number of uh, implications uh, from what uh, we have looked at so far. I think, first of all, is um, let's be a people of praise. Let's be a people of praise. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You know, this psalm helps us to know who we are and our place in this vast universe. It gives meaning to our lives. It gives significance to our existence. It gives us self-worth knowing that our place is in our Creator's heart and mind. Be a people of praise. Well, this psalm also, friends, secondly, gives us a reason to care. To care for other people who are made in the image of God. Care for the weaker in society, for the oppressed, the sick, the weary, the less able-bodied. And to care for the world we live in. Uh, to, to respect nature and not exploit it and destroy it. To be responsible tenants, I guess. Responsible tenants as, as uh, we're looking after God's world. And thirdly, third application, is that this psalm gives us, I think, a worthy view of man, a worthy view of man as being created and crowned with glory and honor. And I think, you know, as, as God's church, we must not be embarrassed by this. As God's church, we must uphold the biblical doctrine of creation. You know, today, through education, through popular science, 
You know, we have abandoned this worthy view of man and exchanged it for apes, intelligent apes, animals with big brains and less hair. I, f I find this disturbing, um, you know, because on, on the one hand, uh, society preaches equality and human rights. On what basis? Not sure. But what, on the other hand, society also chooses to descend, to be with animals, rejecting God and creation, the very things that actually uphold the dignity and the worth of every individual. Well, I, I guess this uh, inconsistency, friends, should not surprise us uh, as Christians. Returning now, perhaps, to Psalm 8, notice that in such a beautiful psalm, we still find problems. Things are not as they were meant to be in God's world. So take a look at me, uh, take a look at verse 2 uh, with me. Verse 2 says, From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. Enemies, foes, avengers, three different ways of describing one thing, and that's rebellion. There are weeds growing in God's beautiful garden. In fact, my lawn is mostly weeds, a great example of a rebellious world. Verse 2 most likely includes uh, a wider cosmic rebellion against the good creator God, the world of evil and forces of darkness that we cannot see. But certainly this rebellion also includes mankind, man who had been given freedom and power to rule all of creation, now raise their arms, kind of showing off their biceps, to God, who made this universe by the work of his fingers. How arrogant, how arrogant can man be? Man says, down with God, down with God. You know, I like to think that uh, rebellion is not my problem. You know, it's not, it's not one, uh, I'm not one of those these enemies, these foes and avengers, those horrible rebels out there. But I think we all know, if, if we are honest with ourselves, that the rebels out there are also the rebels within us, within each of our hearts. In fact, King David himself said in another psalm, Surely I was sinful at birth, Sinful from the time my mother conceived me. But friends, in, in God's world, where he cares for man, as in verse 4, what is man that you care for him? God has planned a way, a way for rebels to turn back to him and experience deliverance. Another translation uh, for the word care in verse 4, 
the Son of Man, that you care for him. Another translation is visit. In fact, the King James Version uh, says, What is man that you visiteth him? And God visits in order to rescue. He visits in order to deliver. And so in God's world, God is majestic in his salvation. And we are in our second heading then, majestic in, our, in salvation. So let's now return, friends, to verse 2. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. It says there, praise, but there's another translation which is perhaps a bit more accurate. It's ordained strength. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained strength. Well, while we meet power with power, strength with strength, you know, rather like uh, in an arm wrestling contest, God delivers through what is weak. God's power, verse 2 says, His strength is manifest through the weakest of men, helpless infants and little children. In this sense, God is again majestically powerful, in his salvation. God is going to shut the mouths of his enemies through infants and little children. This is quite an unusual military move if this were warfare. You know, it's like, a, it's like holding a water gun to a terrorist armed with a machine gun. You know, one can imagine God's uh, avengers rolling around on the floor, laughing out, you know, laughing their heads off. And why not? You know, I can't imagine anything that comes out of the mouths of infants that I associate with strength. Crying? No. It's just sleepless nights. Uh, vomit? Mm, definitely not. It's, uh, it's an overrated experience. But, um, friends, verse 2 illustrates the case where the full significance of Psalm 8 won't become evident until the New Testament era, uh, which comes about a thousand years later after David. And although King David was a king, he was also a prophet. And led by the Spirit of God, he foresaw in Psalm 8 the coming of God's salvation for mankind. In fact, just about half of Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament. And that is a lot for such a short psalm. Verse 2 that we had read earlier is quoted by our Lord Jesus himself in Matthew 21. While verses 4, 5, and 6 are quoted in Hebrews chapter 2, which we had read earlier. And in both of these, the common thread that binds everything together is the person of Jesus Christ. So in Matthew 21, Jesus quoted Psalm 8 verse 2 to his enemies. And who are his enemies? These are the powerful, educated religious leaders. Because they became indignant that uh, little children 
were praising and proclaiming Jesus to be God's true promised king. The little children were shouting uh, in the temple and on the street saying, Hosanna, all hail to King Jesus, all, all hail to the son of David. And um, it's, it's amazing because in this way, Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 8, verse 2. Verse 2 only makes sense to us today uh, through the New Testament. In fact, if I may put it rather crudely, uh, Jesus is that secret weapon that uh, God deployed to silence his enemies. Jesus is God's majestic power. And similarly, in Hebrews chapter 2, we also saw Psalm 8 verses 4 and 6 being fulfilled in the person of Christ himself. And for that, perhaps uh, let, let's briefly take a diversion, uh, shall we, to, to, the, to Hebrews chapter 2 in the New Testament. If you could uh, turn with me to page 1202. 1202, which is Hebrews chapter 2 that uh, we had read earlier. And notice um, in the middle of that passage that, we, that Abby read earlier, there is Psalm chapter 8 there. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him, and so on and so on. But friends, who is this man? Who is the man that Hebrews 2 is talking about? Who is uh, this son of man that Hebrews 2 is talking about? Well, it's not man in a general sense of the word mankind that uh, we had used so far. But that man is Jesus. And the key verse that I'd like you to perhaps look with me, is verse 9 of, of, of Hebrews 2. Verse 9. But we see Jesus, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor. That's Psalm 8 language, friends. Because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Well, let's pause here for a moment. So we started off with the question, what is man? Now, that question has more accurately become, what is the man, Jesus? Jesus, as it were, has become that perfect man, that perfect man who stands for all mankind, including rebels, like all of us. But to what end and for what purpose? Well, again, in verse 9, if you cast your eye to it, that by the grace of God, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's extraordinary that by the grace of God, Jesus might taste death for everyone. 
So Jesus' crown of glory and honor was his crown of thorns as he died on that cruel cross. Death, of course, being the ultimate symbol of weakness uh, for mankind, it's the end for man. Um, it's, however, the symbol for Christianity. It's a constant reminder of the weakness of man. But more importantly, it's a constant reminder that Jesus tasted death for me. He died my death. He died for me. And because Jesus is risen from the dead, we too who trust in his death will rise with him in glory. And in doing so, because you know, God has put everything under his feet, God has put everything in subjection to Christ the King, we too will also reign with Jesus in glory. We will rule creation through Christ. Friends, again, you know, God does not have to do this. God does not have to do this. But God is gracious. And returning now to Psalm chapter 8, you might say that God is majestically good. God is majestically good in his salvation. So from a distance, we can see in Psalm chapter 8 a vision of God's plan of salvation for his rebellious world. We see through Psalm chapter 8 how God's majestic power and his majestic goodness ultimately come together in the shape of a cross. The cross of Christ is where God's majestic power and his majestic goodness meet. So friends, I, I just would like to close now with, with a few applications from this majestic psalm. I think firstly is that Jesus is, is a majestic saviour. We don't need to look anywhere else. Jesus Christ is both God's majestic power and God's majestic goodness in one. So have you considered Christ? You know, this morning we have kind of put a telescope, as it were, uh, through Psalm 8. And, and at, at the end of that telescope, we see the figure of a cross. Jesus wore the crown of thorns so that we might wear the crown of glory and honor. Well, friends, if you have not considered this Christ, then I pray uh, that this psalm might be a door that opens for you a whole new beginning.
Well, uh, secondly, a second application for us is that rebellion is, uh, is futile. Because through the cross, Jesus has silenced his enemies. He is already victorious. You know, perhaps we, we want to avoid Christ uh, because we want to live how we want to live. You know, we want to rule our own lives and be free. But I hope this psalm has given us a true understanding of freedom in God's world. Uh, that is freedom through the one man, Jesus Christ. Any other way is slavery. You know, it's like being free, but being free within a maze. Uh, you, you think you are free to roam about in this maze. But um, true freedom is found outside the maze. And in God's world, true freedom is found through Jesus, our majestic Savior. And friends, lastly, and our last application, is sing. Sing. Let's not forget that this psalm is actually a song. It's a song of praise. A song of praise, not only for individuals, but as it says here, O Lord, our Lord. Ultimately, he is the Lord of all the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Well, why don't we close uh, in prayer, and then Tom will come to introduce our last song uh, for us. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Lord, we thank you for what you have taught us uh, through Psalm 8. That you are majestically powerful and that you are majestically good. And that we can see your power and your goodness in your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that he tasted death for me. And we pray, Lord, that we might put our trust in Jesus and that you might be glorified in this creation that we might rule creation through you. In Jesus we pray, and for his glory. Amen.